We all need food to survive, but the way we produce and consume today is not sustainable nor healthy. We looked to science to find the answer, but got surprised. There was no clear answer on what a healthy diet from a sustainable food production really looked like. This is why EAT gathered 37 of the world's best scientists to get a definitive answer on what a healthy and sustainable diet looks like for all. Their joint result is the EAT Lancet Commission, not just a scientific report. It is a blueprint for a better and more sustainable future. It will have fundamental implications for how we produce, distribute, consume and waste food. Nothing will ever be the same again. The good news is that it's possible to feed healthy and sustainable food to a growing population. But to get there, you could argue that we'll have to question everything we know about food and learn how to eat again. I'm Dr Hazel Wallace from The Food Medic. And I'm Dr Sandro DeMeo, CEO of EAT. From the studio in London, we aim to translate the Eat Lancet findings into everyday actions to you, our global audience. This is the Let's Rethink Food podcast, a collaboration between Eat and The Food Medic. On today's episode, we have three very exciting guests joining us to discuss the future of food production. The Commission clearly states that many changes need to occur in how we grow and how we produce our food, with a focus on greater efficiency, growing more food from less, and sustainability, producing our food in a way that we can keep producing it tomorrow and beyond. In this episode, we will look at ways in which meat is being produced, but with a fraction of the footprint, and explore the latest technologies helping farmers worldwide to grow with precision and efficiency. Co-Commissioner of the Eat Lancet Report, Professor Jessica Fanzo, will outline some of the challenges and solutions to fix our broken food system. We have the technician behind the world's first lab-grown hamburger, Peter Vashrada, with us, and the serial entrepreneur and founder of Local Dirt, Heather Hilleran. Peter, you have a long background in the meat industry, but now you're producing lab-grown meat. What impact has livestock farming on climate change, both through greenhouse gases, but also beyond? Uh, well, FAO did, uh, did a little bit of math on that, uh, actually, a couple of times. And the outcome of that is that roughly 15% of human-induced climate change is actually uh, caused by uh, livestock. So it has a big impact. Meat, particularly beef, is a very inefficient source of food. And Peter, how can cultured meat help reduce those emissions? Well, cultured meat is essentially the same as a product. It's just that the context of the product is completely different. Cultured meat is meat grown from the same cells that make the meat of the muscles of the animals that we eat. It's just grown in a bioreactor, in a confined environment, much more controllable. It uses less resources, it uses less water, less land, and uh, very importantly, it doesn't produce relevant amounts of greenhouse gases, which traditional livestock production does. It just about ticks every box. It's almost too good to be true, but uh, I'm afraid it is true. And just to be clear, we're talking about actual animal cells. So it is still beef. It's beef cells, but it's grown on a Petri dish? Yeah, well, it's it's not literally grown on a, on a Petri dish. What we do is use the repair mechanism of our muscles. The muscles of any animal or human, for that matter, they have the ability to self-repair. So when you damage your muscle, it's... It, it, repairs itself. And it does so with the use of a certain type of stem cells. And these stem cells, we take them from a cow through a biopsy. So the cow 
can live, and we replicate them in a bioreactor, just like uh, what happens in real life when you damage that muscle. And when we've replicated them enough, we then trigger the process of these individual cells turning into functional muscle tissue, So, which is essentially the same as the muscles of a live animal that we slaughter. So it's, it's, it's just the same. And does it taste the same? <laughs> I was going to ask that question. <laughs> it will taste the same. If you look at the taste of meat, that depends on the composition, obviously. It depends on the presence of fat, for instance. It depends on the presence of, uh, well, it's not really blood, but it's the stuff that makes the meat red. Uh, that's very important for the taste. And all these either tissues or molecules need to be present in your product for the product to have the same experience as meat has. And we're actually now working on uh, finalizing all those aspects of the product towards a what we call hamburger 2.0, which is which is going to take all the boxes. Wow. The report clearly calls for a reduction in uh, the consumption of re- particularly red meat uh, in wealthier yes. parts of the world. But big parts of the world actually are not getting enough meat. They need to be eating more meat for health reasons or at least more animal source proteins or at least the micronutrients that are commonly associated with animal source proteins. So is this a technology that's scalable one day also to feed billions of people in the poorest parts of the world? Or is this something that will stay as sort of a a niche burger for uh, northern hipsters? No, our mission is definitely to turn this technology into a technology that can mass produce affordable meat. So we're not looking to sell burgers for $50 in in Los Angeles or, or Tokyo. We're looking to make a commodity which is not very typical for startup companies because commodities usually don't make a lot of margins. But that's what we want to do. We want to solve a problem. And we think through this technology, we can do so because fundamentally, the technology is more efficient, way more efficient than than the traditional technology, which is using live animals. Our goal is definitely to to outperform the traditional beef production uh, big time. And how much more efficient is it? Give us some figures. What, what, what does it look like in terms of the use of resources or the emissions of greenhouse gases? The truth is we don't really know yet. Uh, we only know based on model systems. So we, we know based on the predictions that we made and many others, for that matter, of what a big scale, large scale system would look like and what the parameters of such a system would be. And if you do that today, if you, if you fill that model with parameters that are, let's say, the closest to what we think can become reality, then the reductions in land and water use are are really dramatic. I mean, you'd you'd only be looking at between zero and 5% of the current use of water and land for livestock production. And same goes for for greenhouse gas emissions. The energy use uh, will be comparable with the most efficient source of meat. At least that's what the models say today, which is chicken. Mm. Yeah. And um, Peter, I'm interested to know, have you done um, nutritional analysis on this meat? Is it the same as if we had taken it from a cow, for example? It's going to be the same. So it's it's going to have the same protein composition. It's going to have uh, the same vitamins and minerals present because you need those, most of them anyway, to grow the cells in the first place. There will be one exception, which is vitamin B12 a very specific exception. Um, And this is present in meat because live animals sort of incorporate that in meat through their uh, colon rectal system. 
And we don't have that. We don't have a, a digestive system when we grow our cells. So vitamin B12, we will have to add. Other than that, the, uh, the nutritional composition will be, will be comparable. And it has to be, because if you want to get this product allowed in the EU, you will have to go through the so-called novel food procedure. And for that, you don't only need to prove that what you're doing is safe for consumers, but you also need to prove that the nutritional value of the product is comparable to uh, the value, nutritional value of the reference product, which in this case is, is meat. And of course, the question we're all asking, when might we see this on our supermarket shelves uh, here in Europe or elsewhere in the world? Well, supermarkets, that's, that's going to be a while because it has to do with scaling. So in our plans, and mind you, there are now 30 companies all over the world, so this is just us. But in our plans, we go to the market small scale, very small scale and very local, about three years from today. And over to you, Heather. You founded Local Dirt back in 2005, one of the first startups connecting farmers with online distributors and retailers. Can you first of all just tell us a little bit about Local Dirt? Sure. Local Dirt was started just because of an inefficiency in the marketplace. At the time, I was working with a grocery store and found that the the local farmers, they were buying less and less from local farmers every year. And it wasn't because of the quality. It wasn't because they didn't have what the grocery store was looking for. It was just mainly that they had no way of efficiently buying from local farmers. So what would happen is that they would do the easiest thing, which was just to go online and buy from the local distributor. And it was in the Midwest. Midwest has a very short growing season. And at the peak of the season, there's an abundance of product that perishes very quickly. And local farmers were saying that up to 60% of what they would produce would be lost because they just couldn't find a marketplace. And um, at the peak of the season, it becomes very inexpensive and it wasn't efficient for the grocery stores either because they were fined from the local food distributor, which may be charging more for the product than the farmer would have charged. So Local Dirt was created for an efficient marketplace so that places like grocery stores, hospitals, schools could buy directly from farmers. It ended up branching out into a mobile app called Locavore where individuals could find their local food systems and source directly from farmers. First of all, you, you describe yourself as a process consultant. That sounds like a, I would love to have that on my business card. Uh, <laughs> what, what is a process consultant? A process consultant is somebody who goes in and looks at the process of a system that already exists. So I work a lot with companies where I go in, I take a look at how how they function and find ways that they can use different software, they can arrange their teams differently, um, that they can just find ways to become more productive and also uh, that people can become happier in the workplace and have a better quality of life in the workplace. And those things increase profitability. So you talk about ways of increasing productivity and profitability, so efficiency in a way of farming. What are some of the low-hanging fruits? The commission tells us clearly we need to close yield gaps. We need to, you know, we need to produce more food from less resources. What does that look like in most farming practices around the world? Well, it really is about farmers being able to find the right buyers for the product. For instance, I worked with a farmer in Minnesota who grew honey crisp apples. At the time, they were the most popular apples. And he could sell, you know, the medium size 
just fine to grocery stores. They would accept it. And he finally found a market for the small size, which was schools, because they could put a small apple on a child's lunch tray. But the large apples, he couldn't find a market for. And so he was composting them year after year. I mean, these are exact same nutritional value, exact same apple, just larger. And he finally, he was in, you know, northern United States, right next to Canada. He finally found a market in Japan where they would buy these extra large apples because there was no market in the U.S. Well, that's an inefficient marketplace. And so if we find places for farmers to sell their product, then we would reduce a lot of the food waste. Mm. Um, And that's the second part is just reducing America's food waste. The USDA, uh, the United States Department of Agriculture, estimates that 30 to 40 percent of America's food supply is wasted. And that's at all parts along the chain. And then the third is just to use food to feed people. America's largest agricultural crop is corn, but less than a quarter, so less than 25% of the corn grown in America actually goes to human consumption. 40% goes to ethanol, um, an estimated 36% goes to feed cattle, pigs, chickens, and then more of it goes you know, to create corn utensils that can be composted. So, so much of our food is wasted and so much of our food is composted that could go to feed people. Mm. And Heather, we we sometimes hear about this concept of precision agriculture. It sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's about, again, efficiency. It's about putting technology in the hands of farmers and helping them to, to again, do more with less, produce more from less. Can you tell us... What is precision agriculture and and what are some examples that are being used that that get you excited? Sure. So precision agriculture is really about, again, efficiencies. So creating efficiencies in the systems that already exist. So you have um, a very large farm and and there are many farms that are very, very large here. And you can put sensors out to see, you know, which parts of the farm are getting rain, which parts are not. So you can best utilize um, your water resources. You can check, you know, heat index days to see how far along the crop is because, you know, temperature changes depending on the area of your farm. So there are many ways uh, that it can create efficiencies in your farming practices. Mm. What what are some of the technologies being used in low and middle income countries uh, to address the same problems you're addressing in North America? It really is about mobile technology that they're using um, to find marketplaces. So in third world countries, uh, let's say a farmer is in a rural area and they know their crop is going to be harvested soon, they can use a mobile app to find the marketplace to find which city or township they should walk to, walk miles to, to sell their product. And that way, the product doesn't go to waste. What are some of the challenges that you're finding uh, of moving farmers, but also consumers to use these technologies that we know can drive efficiency and and produce more food from less or the same resources? People don't change unless there's a pain point, right? You don't take aspirin unless you have a headache. So if what they're doing is sustainable financially, they're not going to change to make it better. And I guess that that was the biggest challenge. Um, Another challenge is also just access. I mean, believe it or not, 
when in 2005, when Local Dirt started, 40% of the farms in America did not have internet access at all. And the rest usually had very, very slow internet access. It's a challenge in third world countries. And believe it or not, internet access is still a challenge in America in rural areas, which is where the farmers are. Mm. And Jessica, the report states that our global food system requires a new agricultural revolution. So how do we achieve this and where do we start? We're going to need to make massive changes across the agriculture sector, but also the health sector, the political economy sectors that those different sectors are built within. So it's not going to be just agriculture alone that's going to fix this conundrum. It's going to have to be all hands on deck including consumers shifting diets towards those that have a lower environmental footprint, getting public facilities and public services like schools, prisons, hospitals to shift the way they are feeding children, prisoners, and patients. And then on top of that, we need to be thinking about agriculture itself, how we are producing food. And the report goes into a lot of different solutions of producing food more sustainably, including things like better use of water, fertilizers, phosphorus and nitrogen, and the subsidies and policies to allow for that that more sustainable type of production practices. So I think there's a lot of different solutions that the commission report goes into. It's just a matter of getting the political will to invest in those types of strategies and scale them up. Mm. FAO estimates that there are half a billion smallholder farmers across the planet. What are Mm -hmm. smallholder farmers? What are some of the challenges they're facing? And how can we ensure that we drive a transformation in the food system that benefits those most vulnerable, which are often those subsistence farmers on smaller plots of land? Smaller farms, depending on how you want to classify them, can be less than 20 hectares of land. And you see a lot of small farms, even smaller farms, or many are living on less than two hectares of land in some regions of the world. But they're still producing a lot of the world's food. There's some studies showing, and one of the commissioners, Mario Herrero, has shown this in some complementary studies of the commission report, that uh, 30% of the world's food is grown on less than two hectares of land. And of those smallholder farmers, between 50 to 80% of those farms are producing the key micronutrients, things like zinc, iron, vitamin A. B12, in the global food supply. Mm. So they are huge contributors to human health and nutrition, although they're growing less food on smaller plots of land. And that's because they're growing a lot of diverse crops on those lands. The problem is, is that being a smallholder farmer is really challenging. (laughs) And many smallholder farmers are poor. And that obviously has a direct link to vulnerability, uh, poor health and nutrition outcomes. So we're still seeing in a lot of these rural places where smallholders reside, 
high levels of stunting, high levels of micronutrient deficiencies, and they don't get enough of the right types of foods. But what does a new agricultural Mm -hmm. revolution look like for those half a billion smallholder farmers that, as you so eloquently put, are often the most vulnerable in our food system? For most of those smallholder farms, they don't have the basic inputs, water to grow crops, you know, micro-irrigation schemes, precision technology type agriculture that can ensure that they are not reliant only on rain-fed agriculture. That's a basic thing. Mm. Better seeds, seed-saving programs, empowering women in agriculture to not just till land and focus on the drudgery of farming, but actually become entrepreneurs and businesswomen who can get their crops to markets and get more income to feed their families. These are really basic things that smallholder farmers don't get access to. And so what we're dealing with in places where we're asking massive, large-scale farming systems to scale back we need a bit of input to help boost some of these smallholder farms. You know, a lot of the farmers in the world are not just farming anymore. They get their basic income from different livelihoods. They're not just farming. So we need to be thinking about their livelihoods and what is achievable for them to be able to do and and keep their farms viable for them. Mm. One of the other key findings of the report is around uh, meat consumption, animal protein, uh, animal source Mm -hmm. protein consumption. And, and, you know, it's easy for the report headline to read, you know, massive reductions in red meat are required. But actually the, the findings are much more nuanced than that. And for large parts of the planet, large populations across the planet and very vulnerable parts, uh, we need to be actually increasing uh, animal source proteins, or at least they are currently consuming less than would be recommended. Tell us a little bit about this inequity uh, of animal source proteins and, and a bit more of the nuance behind the headline of reductions in red meat consumption are required. Yeah, and I think, you know, Sandra, you hit the nail on the head that we're talking in the report specifically about red meat, so beef, which has a certain... Uh, impact on the environment when you look across a suite of environmental indicators, not just greenhouse gases, but land use, water footprint, seed conversion. And we've known that science for a long time. So uh, to me, it's interesting that it's being debated now because that's been pretty clear in the literature around red meat. The problem is, is that, and we do recommend in the commission report other meats, you know, lesser environmental footprint meats. But we do see that there's a real inequity in the consumption patterns. There's some countries, some specific populations, some specific individuals that are consuming way too much red meat and they just don't need it. They don't need it for health. It's detrimental to the environment. And it begs the question of why consume so much? Yes, you have the freedom, you have the choice to consume red meat at every meal. But the science is pretty clear that making those decisions has ramifications beyond just 
your own immediate satisfaction. So it's, it's an interesting conundrum to me. Whereas you go into other places and you see very vulnerable populations, very low-income populations that get maybe half a deck of cards of meat once a month when they are lucky enough to be invited to a wedding. So to me, that consuming red meat at every meal or two times a day, two of three meals versus those that get almost nothing is an equity issue. And you have to argue, well, why should we care? Well, eating too much red meat is also not great for human health. And Jessica, it's not just about eating less meat or for most of us to eat less meat. It's also about eating more plants. And a key finding in the report states that only 12 crops and five animal species provide 75% of the world's food. And an estimated 940 of cultivated plants are at risk of disappearing. So how can we ensure the survival of the forgotten foods that are packed with nutrition and are resilient to our changing climate? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge issue. I mean, we have so much biodiversity on the planet. You know, so many different types of plants and different species of plants and animals. And within those species, we've got tons of varieties. And they provide different types of characteristics and properties that are important for human health. They have different nutritional profiles, but they also have different profiles in the way they grow. Some are wind tolerant, some are drought tolerant, some can withstand different types of extreme weather conditions. So it's a it's important from a climate change perspective of decreasing risk of loss of crops, right? If you have more diversity. So we need more investment in, in biodiversity and less investment in the traditional maize, rice, wheat, potato crops. We need to move beyond those. And Jessica, from a practical level for people listening at home, what can we do as consumers when it comes to buying our foods in the supermarket? Should we be going for, you know, what's in season or maybe something that we haven't tried before? Yeah, buying seasonally is always a good thing. Um, but, you know, we all have to admit we like our Ethiopian coffee. We like our <laughs> we like our raspberries on our granola in the morning in February in New York City. So there has to be some some realism. But I think there's a lot of simple things we can do. You can experiment, adventure with seasonal crops, cook more. Sandro has a lot of really great stuff, even on his Instagram, where he shows how you can cook seasonal foods really easily at home. Um, So get into the kitchen, start experimenting. When you go to the store, don't buy so much because you end up usually wasting half of that food when you buy and overload your refrigerator. Just buy less trying some of these really interesting new plant-based protein products that are coming out that, you know, look like meat, smell like meat, taste like meat, but it's not meat. Mm -hmm. And always try to eat greens at every meal, you know, mix it up. Try ethnic cuisines, often Thai food, Indian food, Nepalese food, they're fantastic. They're spicy. They're tasty. And often they're much more plant-based than 
you know, U.S. or European type diet foods. And Peter, I just want to bring it back to you for a second. So while we wait for lab-grown burgers, and you said that might take three to five years to get on our supermarket shelves, what is the next best alternative we can be putting on our plate? Well, the next best alternative, arguably maybe even a better alternative, would be for us to stop eating meat altogether or cut down dramatically because we don't really need meat, um, well, not anymore. We can replace meat easily with uh, with plant-based products. It makes life a little bit more complicated, I guess, but uh, we can do without it. But we're, you know, we're just hooked to it. We're we're sort of addicted to meat a little bit. But what we can do tomorrow is is uh, reduce our meat intake. Just try one of those plant-based meat analogs that have been around for a long time, but that are that are getting better and better, especially over the last couple of years. A lot of money is going has been going towards development of plant-based meat analogs, um, and these are becoming pretty decent products. So try those once in a while. They will make a difference, cut down meat consumption altogether. And, you know, beef is, is, is great. Uh, to, at least that's my personal opinion. It tastes wonderful, but chicken and pork are simply more efficient sources of meat. So if you want to consume beef, only do it when it really matters to you. Great advice. I mean, you can produce beef in far more efficient ways and you can produce beef in far less efficient ways. Can you speak to that in terms of how we maybe ensure that the small amount of beef that we are eating, if we choose to, is the most environmentally uh, sustainable and efficient uh, on option? Probably grass-fed beef would then be the best uh option of the two, although none of the beef produced is very efficient. I mean, it's, it's sort of inherent in the animal that, it's, uh, that it converts food in an inefficient manner. But uh, grass-fed would then probably be the best, the best option um, and not, not the factory-farmed version that is, that is fed with power food, if you like. I would say that people would change their view about eating meat if they just drove by some of the meat factories and saw the conditions and of the, of the meat that they were actually eating, um, it's not very tasteful. Mm. I believe that people can enjoy the food that they consume more if they just know where it comes from. And developing, as, as difficult as it may be, developing a relationship with the farmer, just going down to a local food market and meeting some of the farmers um, and appreciating them a little more or asking, you know, at the grocery store, and some do here, to post what farm it comes from, what farm the product comes from, goes a long way to reduce anonymous food. Um, And anonymous food is really where a lot of the problems lie in our food system. Let's say I, I say the word tomato. What do you think of? You think of a standard red beefcake tomato that is of a particular size and shape. That is anonymous food. You expect all tomatoes to be exactly the same. And food distributors require food to be exactly the same so they can sell it on a large scale. So that a tomato is a tomato is a tomato, no matter what farm it comes from. But when food is anonymous and generic like this, um, that leads to monocultures where we have to grow exactly the same crop you know, on a vast amount of land, which makes it very susceptible to diseases, to pests. It also reduces the market for a different size tomato or a purple tomato. So anonymous food really, and 
And it goes back to traceability also. Mm. You know, um, distributors have a difficulty tracing back where the food actually comes from. Um, And that's become a problem also in America when we have an incident breakout, a pathogen, and trying to trace the food back to where it comes from. So just knowing where your food comes from, asking a grocer or a distributor to notify you where the food comes from, I believe goes a long way in supporting the farmer. Mm. Yeah, and I know that in many parts of the world, parts of Europe and Asia Pacific, it, it's by you know by law you have to show where the food comes from, not down to the individual farmer or or the region, but certainly by country. I mean, do you do you think that's the future? We need to actually have on the food label when you're at the supermarket a high level of sort of specificity, I suppose, you know, better empower consumers by telling them exactly where their food has come from? Yes, absolutely. It goes back to honesty. Like, take a look at the uh, the honey industry right now. Right now, the world consumes far more honey than the world produces in honey. How do we achieve that? We achieve that through food additives that are unknown to us. Unfortunately, a lot of those have come out of China, where a lot of the honey coming out of China has been adulterated. So as a consumer, you may choose to not buy honey that comes from China. If you knew that, you could make the choice. If you don't know that, well, then we can't really make an impact on that food adulteration. Mm. So I think we're going to see a big change with technology and innovation happening to make it easier to eat healthy. Mm. And it seems like it's so far away, but it's actually not. It's happening now. Sandra has written and spoken a lot about this. I think change is coming and and social media and technology is going to really change the way people interact with food, the way they cook with food, the way they get their food delivered, et cetera. So I think it's going to be a a really interesting time to see how things change with, with the way people access their food. So to close, Heather, I I just want to ask a question. I mean, for many of us listening, we're not farmers. Some of us probably sometimes wish we were, but what are three things that, you know, we can all start doing today to support farmers and producers that are leading the charge in creating a a more sustainable and efficient food system? Well, I can think of two. (laughs) Um, One is just to support your local food system. So, Buy locally from local farmers, support local farmers whenever you can. Um, Another is just to ask for the food to be labeled. So it is no longer anonymous. Where did this food come from? If it's the farm, if it's the country, um, as much information as you can get about your food. And Peter, do you have a third one you want to add? Fish might be a good one. Eat more fish good type of fish that is it's a very efficient source of uh, available protein as well but generically the one the best one would be just to cut down on uh, animal protein intake altogether that's good okay great. great thank you that was really helpful 